welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Twenty twenty two is here in force, with eight very interesting cases throughout the circuits. The first circuit in particular had a week. Before we get to the cases though, this week I had the honor of appearing on another podcast, the New Jersey Criminal Podcast, hosted by attorney Megan J. McCormick Honer. Meg's a very experienced criminal attorney in New Jersey, and I recommend her show and her services. She and I talked a lot about all sorts of immigration issues, and I think I'll appear again on her show. It was a lot of fun, and I got a lot more to talk about. If you're interested in her podcast, check this out. This is Meg McCormick Horner, and I'm the host of New Jersey Criminal Podcast. I'm a certified criminal trial attorney with offices in Ocean City and Bridgeton, New Jersey. New Jersey Criminal Podcast can be found at www.njcriminalpodcast.com and all major podcast players. Pretty cool, huh, this technology thing? All right, now on to my podcast. On to the cases. Starting off with a big week, we've got Takwee v. Garland, published by the 10th Circuit on January 10th, 2022. This case, like so many I'm about to discuss, is about credibility. Mr. Takwee is an asylum seeker from Cameroon. He passed his credible fear interview at or near the border and was placed in removal proceedings to bring his asylum claim, which he did without an attorney. Like the non-citizens in a few recent cases, Mr. Takwi testified that he was a member of the Southern Cameroon National Council, or SCNC, quote, a political organization that seeks independence for the Anglophone region of Southern Cameroon, end quote. He testified to having been arrested twice by military police, while protesting, and tortured in prison. A year later, police came to his home, found SCNC pamphlets, and beat him severely. Mr. Takwi included corroborating letters and evidence for his claim, including his SCNC card. But an immigration judge believed Mr. Takwi inconsistent and denied his claims. 
The IJ did not, however, make an adverse credibility finding. The IJ simply held that the inconsistencies made Mr. Takui's pro se testimony insufficiently reliable. The BIA affirmed, notwithstanding Mr. Takui obtaining counsel for the appeal. And likely with the assistance of that same counsel, the Tenth Circuit remanded. And that's really because of what the IJ did with credibility. As discussed often, including even after the Supreme Court's Garland v. Die decision discussed on episode 58 of the podcast, unless an IJ makes an explicit adverse credibility finding, quote, the applicant or witness shall have a rebuttable presumption of credibility on appeal to the BIA, end quote. Now, Die holds that that's not the case when the matter is appealed from the BIA to the circuit, but it still holds true with appeals from the IJ to the BIA because of the governing statute and the regulation. This is particularly important because, quote, the reluctance to make clean determinations of credibility appears to be a disturbing feature in immigration cases, end quote, and the Tenth Circuit will not be encouraging such disturbing actions. Without an explicit adverse credibility finding, the BIA needed to provide Mr. Takui a rebuttable presumption of credibility on appeal, i.e., it probably needed to accept his story of past persecution as true, or at least provide a very good reason why not. It did not do so, and so the Tenth Circuit remanded. But that does still leave open the question, what is an explicit adverse credibility finding? Apparently the statute in the Tenth Circuit case law is unclear, so the panel answered it, quote, Explicit means fully and clearly expressed, leaving nothing implied, end quote. While IJs aren't bound by magic words, to satisfy the statute, quote, the IJ must state in no uncertain terms that the applicant's testimony is or is not credible, end quote. Here, the IJ's discussion of, quote, significant concerns, end quote, and other inconsistencies, even after considering the testimony and record in totality, didn't cut it. The IJ's final statement got closest, stating that, quote, even if the court were to stop short of finding Mr. Takui's testimony not credible, he would still need to provide corroborating evidence, end quote. But that begs the question for the Tenth Circuit, quote, did the IJ stop short of finding Mr. Takui's testimony not credible, end quote. Again, it's all really important because if credible, he probably suffered past persecution, which means that he should be granted asylum unless DHS can establish otherwise. That's why the correct presumption on appeal is so vital, and it's why the Tenth Circuit remanded, quote, an ambiguous finding which leaves us guessing about whether the IJ came to her determination because the applicant was not credible or, for some other reason, cannot serve as an explicit adverse credibility finding, end quote. Just looking at the citations and the quotes, it appears that this decision aligns with that of many circuits, including but not necessarily limited to the 1st, 4th, 6th, 7th, and 11th. For completeness sake, the Tenth Circuit did not, however, agree with Mr. Takui's argument that the IJ erred in finding him competent to represent himself, pro se, below. Apparently, there may have been some mental health concerns or other issues, and so the IJ questioned Mr. Takui to assess his competence, and continued proceedings to assess competency as well. Therefore, according to the Tenth Circuit, this complied with the BIA's seminal decision on the matter, matter of MAM, which lists what IJs must do to assess the competency of pro se non-citizens. The U.S. Constitution requires nothing more. 
at least under the circumstances presented here. Mr. Takui's responses indicated that he understood what was going on, and even on appeal, he didn't really explain, apparently, why his PTSD or depression made him not competent to represent himself before the IJ. But again, on the substance of the adverse credibility finding, which is really the most important part, Mr. Takui won. And it looks like the Tenth Circuit is also heavily suggesting that the BIA should remand the whole matter for submission of additional evidence, evidence that Mr. Takui now wants to submit with the assistance of counsel. So congratulations, Jesse Howard Witt, for petitioner. And that is Takui v. Garland. Next is the first of a trio of First Circuit decisions, Diaz-Ortiz v. Garland published by the En Banc Court on January 10th, 2022. This is a brisk 65-pager from the En Banc First Circuit on Boston's, quote, gang assessment database, end quote, and on credibility. And for those of you, like my mother, aghast at the decision's length, don't you worry. The majority decision is only 55 pages. Now, because it's an En Banc decision, that likely means the panel decision has been discussed before on the podcast, and it was, way back on episode 3. The En Banc court has now reversed that panel decision and ruled in favor of Mr. Diaz-Ortiz in an important way. Let's begin. Mr. Diaz-Ortiz is from El Salvador and entered the U.S. in 2015 at 16 years old. He went to go live with an uncle in Boston, where three years later, ICE agents arrested him with two other people as part of an operation against MS-13. But Mr. Diaz-Ortiz had no arrest record and no prior gang accusations. ICE kept him in custody for years. In detention, and now over 18 years old, he filed an application for asylum and related relief, quote, including persecution because of his evangelical Christian religion, end quote. He stated that he's refused MS-13's recruitment and demands multiple times because of his faith, and that he was physically attacked and threatened in El Salvador in 2015. Also, his aunt was murdered by the gang, and he expanded upon his faith via affidavit submitted in court with other supporting documents. Mr. Diaz-Ortiz's in-court testimony through an interpreter was largely consistent with his submissions, quote, sometimes with slight variations or elaboration, end quote. Mr. Diaz-Ortiz also presented expert testimony. DHS, over Mr. Diaz-Ortiz's objection and purportedly as rebuttal evidence, introduced a packet with gang assessment database documents and a report by an ICE officer describing Mr. Diaz-Ortiz as a, quote, verified, end quote, member of MS-13. Mr. Diaz-Ortiz's expert explained why these documents aren't reliable, and the ICE officer was not present to testify. The IJ accepted and relied upon these documents. The IJ made an adverse credibility finding. A lot of the finding related to the fact that the IJ believed Mr. Diaz-Ortiz an MS-13 member despite his testimony, relying heavily on those documents from the gang assessment database. Kind of relatedly, apparently Mr. Diaz-Ortiz had an encounter with police where he possessed a chain and a lock, and he told police was for his bike at the time. To get into the weeds about this, the IJ, acting a bit like a prosecutor based on the testimony reflected in this decision, seems to have got Mr. Diaz-Ortiz on the stand to agree that he only ever used the train to get around Boston. The IJ therefore believed Mr. Diaz-Ortiz inconsistent when he testified later on cross-examination that he also used a bike, sometimes, to get around his neighborhood. Mr. Diaz-Ortiz's attorney even had to object to the IJ, 
about the IJ's own question as misstating prior testimony. A pretty uncomfortable thing to have to do. Extrapolating on all that, though, the IJ determined that the record indicated that Mr. Diaz-Ortiz was MS-13. Also, the IJ did not believe some of his testimony regarding his Christian faith. The BIA affirmed as did the First Circuit panel with a dissent, but now, with the en banc court, the dissent has won the day for Mr. Diaz-Ortiz. It really comes down mostly to that gang assessment database and the related documents that I submitted. The First Circuit believes it's central to the adverse credibility finding, but it also believes the database very unreliable. And really, that's because those ICE documents rely on a Boston police database, which contains documents known as Field Interrogation Observations, or FIOs. And the First Circuit has little faith in the FIOs. When the Boston police create them, most of the information is based on, quote, consensual encounters, end quote, between subjects and police, which under Massachusetts law, quote, are considered constitutionally insignificant, and a police officer may initiate such an encounter without any information indicating that the individual has been or is presently engaged in criminal activity, end quote. The Boston Gang Database is based on a point system, and it seems really for the police to coordinate information amongst themselves. It appears that they're not really sufficiently reliable, say, for criminal court, at least not by themselves. In Mr. Diaz-Ortiz's case, he got a bunch of points mainly for being in regular contact with known MS-13 members. So the report seems to say... But actually digging deeper into the report, the First Circuit found that those people that Mr. Diaz-Ortiz was in contact with are listed as only suspected gang members. Boiled down, the First Circuit saw a series of encounters with a Salvadoran teenager smoking pot and sometimes speaking with other Salvadoran teenagers in high school, some of which were suspected of being MS-13. The First Circuit did not like that as a basis to label Mr. Diaz-Ortiz as MS-13 himself. Putting it legally, the First Circuit has held in the past that an IJ's reliance on police reports can indeed be an abuse of discretion under the right circumstances. And under all circumstances, if an IJ is going to rely on any police report at all, the IJ must first, quote, determine that the report is reliable and that its use would not be fundamentally unfair, end quote. The IJ must make that finding and presumably explain why. If not, the IJ cannot rely on police reports. As you may have guessed, no such initial finding was made here. This is a big problem because substantively the reports reveal a quote, lack of evidence to substantiate the gang package's classification of Mr. Diaz-Ortiz as a member of MS-13, end quote. Just because a police report says something doesn't make it so in immigration court, and that's especially true according to the First Circuit when the police are basing their finding on a quote, point system, end quote. At the end of the day, in stripping away his and other young men being Hispanic, quote, the FIOs show no more than a teenager engaged in quintessential teenage behavior, hanging out with friends and classmates, end quote. Or put differently, and here's a great standard for attacking adverse credibility findings post-Supreme Court decision in Garland v. Dye, quote, the government's evidence was simply not of a kind and quality that a reasonable fact finder could find sufficient, end quote. Touching on the train and bike transportation around Boston thing, the First Circuit believes the IJ's questioning, conduct, and conclusions were tainted by a belief that Mr. Diaz-Ortiz was an MS-13 member, which again goes back to that faulty gang report. 
And quote, most notably during the cross-examination, the IJ cut off what appears to be an attempt by Mr. Diaz-Ortiz to explain the discrepancy the IJ had raised, end quote. Case remanded. Judges Lynch, Howard, and Gelpie dissented, fearing the decision will have, quote, consequences going well beyond this case, end quote. Perhaps. Congratulations Christian M. Beale and half of Boston for a win on what appears to be a long-fought pro bono fight. Long one, but I've done my best. So please indulge me a bit more. If you ever have a case that involves the Boston Police's field interrogation observations, this is a must-read. Pages and pages about how the documents aren't reliable. Really, just submit the decision and let the First Circuit do the rest to try and get that evidence excluded, or at least undermined. And how about this quote as, I'm a nerd on burdens. Notwithstanding Mr. Diaz-Ortiz's overall burden on asylum, quote, Mr. Diaz-Ortiz was not obliged to prove that those individuals were not gang members. It was the government's obligation to demonstrate that they were MS-13 associates through the gang package or other evidence, end quote. Noted. And that is Diaz-Ortiz v. Garland. Next is Pulik v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on January 11th, 2022. This case is about inadmissibility waivers for refugees seeking to adjust to lawful permanent resident status. Mr. Pulik is from Bosnia, a first on the podcast. He was admitted into the U.S. as a refugee in 1992 for reasons that many listeners can imagine, but he never became an LPR, and therefore he certainly didn't naturalize. In 2016, he was convicted by a jury in Massachusetts of assault with a dangerous weapon, a firearm, under Massachusetts General Law Chapter 265, Section 15b, b, and a variety of other firearm offenses. For everything, it appears he was sentenced to four to five years incarceration. In removal proceedings, Mr. Pula conceded that he was removable under INA Section 237A2C for having been convicted of an offense related to a firearm but challenged the allegation that his conviction or convictions were also aggravated felonies under INA Section 101A43F, a crime of violence, as defined at 8 U.S.C. Section 16A. The IJ sustained both charges. As for relief from removal, Mr. Pulik applied to adjust to LPR status under the Special Refugee Adjustment Provision that he should have done many years ago concurrently with a waiver of inadmissibility under INA Section 209C, and alternatively, for asylum and related relief. As the basis for this special refugee adjustment waiver, and to explain that he's more than just his crime, Mr. Pulik and his siblings testify that his mother suffers from cancer and mental health issues in the U.S., and that Mr. Pulik serves as her primary caregiver. The IJ found that the crimes were crimes involving moral turpitude, making Mr. Pulik inadmissible, and then denied the special refugee waiver. And that's because under matter of Jean, there is a heightened standard for waivers for people convicted of violent crimes, and the IJ found Mr. Pulik's met that standard. The IJ then determined that Mr. Pulik hadn't established the hardship to himself or his family in the U.S. necessary for the special refugee adjustment waiver. The IJ also denied asylum and related relief, finding the convictions particularly serious crimes, and the BIA affirmed. The First Circuit upheld the BIA and the IJ. 
First, the First Circuit held that Attorney General Ashcroft did not exceed his authority all those years ago when he issued Matter of Jean. Again, in that decision, the Attorney General, quote, articulated a heightened standard for waiving the inadmissibility of refugees who have been convicted of violent or dangerous crimes, end quote, essentially mandating denial in such cases unless, quote, denial of status adjustment would result in exceptional and extremely unusual hardship, end quote. Congress granted all attorneys general, including the current attorney general, this authority, and Attorney General Ashcroft used it, reasonably, so the First Circuit held. As to upholding matter of gene, this holding aligns with that in a variety of circuits. The decision, quote, left open the possibility that even the most violent and dangerous immigrants could be granted relief in an appropriate case, end quote. So it was permissible. The First Circuit further held that the Attorney General's use of the phrase, quote, violent or dangerous, end quote, in matter of gene, is not unconstitutionally vague because each application is to be based on real-world facts of a given case. So, as Mr. Pulik was inadmissible, remember his crimes were deemed CIMTs, and because they were deemed violent, he needed to meet the heightened matter of gene standard. So he argued, alternatively, should he fail to take down matter of gene, that the IJ and BIA misbalanced all factors required under the case, and that he warranted the waiver. But under the deferential substantial evidence review, the First Circuit upheld the IJ and BIA's balancing of discretionary waiver factors. For example, while separation from his family was going to be hard, especially concerning the care he provided to his mother, his crime was serious. The record indicates that Mr. Pulik had a gun that he shot, that he didn't comply with police on the street, and that he had to be shot on the street to be taken into custody. He testified that he had blacked out during the incident and had trouble with alcohol at the time, and that he was currently in AA. But to the First Circuit, the record indicated that the IJ and BIA considered these facts. The First Circuit can't reweigh evidence on petition for review, so it says. The waiver standard is quite heightened under these circumstances, and the First Circuit's review is limited. So the court affirmed the agency. As Mr. Pulik didn't challenge the denial of asylum and related relief, there was no more to say. Mr. Pulik did not succeed. And that is Pulik v. Garland. Rounding out the first, we have Bonilla v. Garland, published on January 12, 2022. Let's go back to the reliability of government evidence. Always a fun one for me. Mr. Bonilla is from El Salvador. In 2012, he was caught near the Mexico border and apparently signed a record of sworn statement stating that he did not fear return to El Salvador. DHS expeditiously removed him. He returned to the U.S. unlawfully, and in 2018, DHS found out about him and reinstated that 2012 final expedited order. This time, Mr. Bonilla expressed a fear, passed his reasonable fear interview, and so was placed in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge. In those proceedings, he testified that in El Salvador he belonged to and was active in the, quote, conservative political party, the Nationalist Republican Alliance, or ARENA which had been in power for more than 20 years, end quote, but which fell out of power in 2009. When the Farabundo Martí National Liberation Front, or FMLN, won the presidency in El Salvador in 2009, he and his businesses began getting harassed by FMLN officials, and ultimately, officials refused to renew his business licenses, including for the running of his taxi cabs. 
Mr. Bonilla also testified that in 2010 or 11, hospital employees refused to treat his seven-year-old son due to Mr. Bonilla's connection to the Arena political party. Then in 2012, police came to his house in the middle of the night and asked if one of his cabs had been in an accident. When he went to look at the cab, he saw that the police had covered it in blood. They then said that he needed to start making special trips for them, and a few months later they asked him to transport weapons. When he refused, the police threatened to harm his family, and also he was attacked with a gun and a machete by an unknown assailant in El Salvador. What a story. He claimed that he wasn't asked about any of it near the border in 2012. The IJ had, quote, serious doubts, end quote, about the story, but didn't make an express adverse credibility finding. Instead, the IJ decided to give, quote, limited weight, end quote, to the testimony. Sound familiar? The IJ denied withholding of removal and protection under the Convention Against Torture for Mr. Bonilla's failure to meet his burden. The BIA summarily affirmed. The First Circuit remanded. See, the IJ relied heavily on the fact that the 2012 record of sworn statement reflected that Mr. Bonilla didn't have a fear. But according to the First Circuit, the record of sworn statement is unreliable in this case because it says that the interviewee, in 2012, said that his name was Jose Ramos Ivara. That's a very different name than Jose Ernesto Manevar Bonilla, the name of our current subject. Also, the interviewee in 2012 reported a different birth date and a different date of entry, and the report seems to have other inconsistencies. The IJ didn't buy Mr. Bonilla's explanation, but I mean the document says what it says, and it has the inconsistencies that it has. Importantly, Mr. Bonilla's testimony even if not completely believed by the IJ, quote, does not provide substantial evidence that the 2012 record of sworn statement was reliable, end quote. To make that holding, the IJ was essentially using a negative to prove a positive, or so one might argue. And although this decision here doesn't rely upon it, it is, after all, DHS's burden to establish that its evidence is admissible and fundamentally fair. All of these issues were compounded by the fact that no interpreter was used in 2012, although the Border Patrol agent wrote that he read to Mr. Bonilla in Spanish. Nor was there any, quote, affirmation by either Bonilla or the Border Patrol agent that the answers set forth in English in the 2012 record were read back to Mr. Bonilla in Spanish before he initialed and signed the document, end quote. For all these reasons, the First Circuit could not affirm the IJ relying on the record of sworn statement to assess Mr. Bonilla's credibility so the First Circuit remanded. Congratulations, Rachel Elrado, for petitioner. Might I make a suggestion for remand? So again, the IJ didn't actually make an adverse credibility finding in the first place. While the First Circuit doesn't mention the issue, it's certainly another potential flaw for the agency to readdress on remand, particularly in light of the Tacwee v. Garland decision just discussed out of the Tenth Circuit or if we want to talk binding First Circuit precedent on clean adverse credibility determinations, might I suggest Molina Diaz v. Wilkinson, discussed on episode 44 of the podcast? And that is Bonilla v. Garland. Next is Santo Zacharia v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on January 11th, 2022. This case is about reasonable relocation and withholding of removal. Ms. Santos, quote, is a transgender woman and is attracted to men. 
She alleged that she was sexually assaulted by a neighbor in Guatemala at the age of 12 for being gay, and asserted that she was likely to face persecution if she returned to Guatemala due to her sexual orientation and gender identity, end quote. It appears that Ms. Santos may have filed her application too late for asylum. There's generally a one-year deadline on that application, and so before the IJ and the BIA, she applied only for withholding of removal and cat protection, which have higher legal burdens and can't result in a green card. The IJ denied, but at least on appeal, the BIA held that the sexual assault at 12 was indeed past persecution, which would entitle Ms. Santos to at least withholding of removal unless DHS could rebut her presumptively well-founded fear of future persecution by showing that Ms. Santos could reasonably relocate in Guatemala or that there had occurred a fundamental change in conditions. The BIA found the former, that she could safely relocate in Guatemala and avoid the harm that she feared on account of her, quote, homosexuality or transgender identity, end quote. The Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA's holding. And that's mainly because Ms. Santos testified that there are cities in Guatemala where gay pride parades are celebrated openly. Ms. Santos stated in response to a DHS question, quote, yes, probably, there is another place where I can live down there, but I don't know, but I try to stay here to get this protection because besides that I have a brother living here, so I'm trying to have him help me, end quote. Judge Higginson, in dissent, does not believe this statement sufficient for DHS to meet its burden on relocation, but the majority believes this statement establishes that, quote, she did in fact know of a city or cities in Guatemala where it was probably safe for gay and transgender people to live, end quote. Turning to cat protection, there is no presumption even where past torture is established, past harm is simply considered in totality to see if the applicant meets her burden. And the Fifth Circuit dismissed Ms. Santos's challenge here by finding that her claim that the BIA didn't give enough analysis needed to be brought to the BIA first through a motion to reconsider. The Fifth Circuit held that Ms. Santos essentially needs to ask the BIA to consider her case again before the Fifth Circuit would do so. Because she did not, the court held that it lacked jurisdiction to review her CAT claims. Also, the Fifth Circuit agreed with the IJ and the BIA that the record didn't establish her eligibility for CAT protection. A bit more on reasonable relocation. Again, Judge Higginson dissented from pretty much all of it. The crux of the dispute was really one that I didn't get into. The BIA made the reasonable relocation finding for the first time on appeal. Ms. Santos challenged that as impermissible fact-finding by the BIA. But the majority decision here deemed that argument unexhausted by Ms. Santos because, like the cat argument, she didn't first sufficiently bring that issue to the BIA's attention through a motion to reconsider. Judge Higginson disagrees with that. High exhaustion requirements in the Fifth Circuit. Motion to reconsider everything, it would seem. And then on the merits of the relocation issue. As the Fifth Circuit recognizes, once past persecution has been established, it's DHS's burden to establish reasonable relocation. A litany of courts have recently held that to meet that burden, DHS must actually point to a specific place, based on the record evidence, where it is clearly safe for the non-citizen to live, not in hiding. See, for example, Nisimba out of the third on episode 87 of the podcast, Zometa Oriana out of the sixth on episode 84, the Addo decision out of the 10th on episode 34, and the Akasung decision out of the 9th on episode 16. Not really addressed in this decision, though, which of course is the 5th circuit and not those circuits. And that is Santa Zacharia B. Garland. 
Next is Guzman Toralva v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on January 13th, 2022. This decision is about ineffective assistance of counsel motions to reopen. Hope you enjoy the podcast's new sound, applicable to the horror that is ineffective assistance of counsel. Email me with any objections. Mr. Guzman Toralva is from Mexico and entered the U.S. at 19 years old, 15 years ago. He has two U.S. citizen children. He was detained and placed in removal proceedings in 2018, where, through counsel, he conceded removability and obtained a bond. But then he got a new attorney, which, quote, as it turned out, was a poor decision, end quote. The new attorney tried to move to substitute as counsel and to change venue to Newark three times, but all three motions were rejected for counsel's failure to indicate proof of service on prior counsel, as the practice manual requires, and because the pages were not, quote, properly signed and pagnated, end quote. This all was happening in the Cleveland Immigration Court, and based on what I've heard, it appears that that court has quite the reputation for rejecting filings. Neither Mr. Guzman Toralva nor his new attorney appeared for his hearing in Cleveland, and the court ordered Mr. Guzman Toralva removed in absentia. With the help of a third attorney, Mr. Guzman Toralva filed a motion to reopen, arguing among other things that the second attorney told him that he didn't need to appear for his hearing in Cleveland. As the basis, Mr. Guzman Toralva alleged ineffective assistance of counsel, which is governed by the BIA's matter of Lazada decision, which has certain procedural requirements to bring such a claim. One of those requirements in the Sixth Circuit is that the non-citizen, quote, must state whether they filed a formal bar complaint against his lawyer, end quote, and if they haven't so filed, why not? Mr. Guzman Trava didn't do that, and the IJ denied the motion to reopen. The BIA affirmed. And the Sixth Circuit did too. So actually, the Sixth Circuit appears a bit more lenient than some other circuits. Matter of Lazada requires the filing of a bar complaint, but in the Sixth, if you don't, and you convincingly explain why the complaint wasn't filed, an ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen can still succeed. That being said, a non-citizen, quote, who fails to meet the Lazada requirements, forfeits his ineffective assistance of counsel claim, end quote. As to explaining why a bar complaint wasn't filed, and at least in the Sixth Circuit, quote, an acceptable reason would address Lazada's underlying concerns, deterring collusion between the non-citizen and his or her lawyer, and enlisting the non-citizen's help to raise the ethical standards of the immigration bar, end quote. Here, apparently, Mr. Guzman Toralva stated through third counsel simply that he was, quote, not interested, end quote, in filing a bar complaint. That doesn't cut it. It didn't matter that the second attorney had, quote, acknowledged and accepted responsibility for his shortcomings, end quote. Plus, the second attorney apparently didn't admit to all his shortcomings anyway. So it would appear in the Sixth Circuit, bar complaint, or very good explanation, why not? While the court doesn't say it, this all aligns pretty well with the BIA's own decision last year in matter of Melgar, discussed on episode 32. The case, therefore, will not be reopened. And that is Guzman Toralva v. Garland. Turning then to the Ninth Circuit, we first have Jimenez Sandoval v. Garland, published on January 13, 2022. This case is about in absentia, motions to reopen, and minors. Ms. Jimenez Sandoval came to the United States a long time ago. 
She was released on her own recognizance by former INS and placed in deportation proceedings by being served with an order to show cause, the predecessor to notices to appear. She didn't appear for her hearing and was ordered deported in absentia. She did not depart the U.S., and in 2013 or so, she filed a motion to reopen, claiming that she failed to receive adequate notice of her hearing all those years ago. If true, there is no time limit on such motions. See, it turns out that Ms. Amanda Sandoval was not 20 years old as immigration officials believe she was when they served her with the OSC. She was 17. She therefore argued that when she was released on her own recognizance without reasonable notice to an adult, the notice was inadequate under the Ninth Circuit's decision in Flores Chavez v. Ashcroft. We last discussed that case and a similar issue in B.R. v. Garland on episode 64 of the podcast. Lots of reminiscing this week. The IJ disagreed and the BIA affirmed. And the Ninth Circuit found the motion to reopen properly denied. It really all comes down to Flores Chavez. Now true, that case involved similar facts, except Mr. Flores Chavez was 15 years old at the time of the relevant events. And really, the regulation applicable at the time of Flores Chavez and Miss Jimenez Sandoval's relevant events required special procedures where the minor was under 14 years old. So that's neither Mr. Flores Chavez nor Miss Jimenez Sandoval. But in the Flores Chavez decision, the Ninth Circuit held that there isn't a hard cutoff age as to when immigration officials must give notice of a hearing to adults when non-citizen minors are released. Accordingly, the regulations applicable at the time in the Ninth Circuit, quote, requires notice to the adult to whom the juvenile is released from custody, end quote. Emphasis by the court. And important emphasis. The panel distinguished Flores Chavez because, unlike Mr. Flores Chavez, Ms. Jimenez Sandoval, quote, was released on her own recognizance, end quote, rather than into the custody of an adult. It doesn't matter to the Ninth Circuit that the former INS did so based on a mistaken belief that she was herself an adult, or at least that issue wasn't discussed. Quote, because there was no adult present to assume responsibility for ensuring Jimenez Sandoval's appearance at future hearings, the requirements of the regulations were not triggered, end quote. The key, I suppose, is whether the minor is placed in detention and or whether they're released to an adult. Here, neither event occurred. Unsure what would have happened if one had occurred, but neither did here. So the Ninth Circuit found the issue not governed by Flores Chavez which means that 17-year-old Miss Amanda Sandoval received proper notice of her hearing, which means that she loses her motion. And that is Amanda Sandoval v. Garland. That leaves Toganon v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on January 10th, 2022. This case is about arson-type aggravated felonies. Love to end with some crimmigration. Mr. Taganon is from the Philippines and has been a lawful permanent resident since 2013. But in 2015, he was convicted of arson in violation of California Penal Code Section 451B and sentenced to three years imprisonment. DHS initiated removal proceedings alleging that Mr. Taganon's conviction was an aggravated felony as defined in INA Section 101A43EI as it was an offense described in 18 U.S.C. Section 844I, and that charge was sustained by the IJ and the BIA. This aggravated felony provision isn't adjudicated very often and, of course, involves the categorical approach, so here we go. First, what is the definition of the federal offense? 
Sure, it's INA Section 101A43EI, but like the crime of violence definition at 101A43F that we always discuss, this aggravated felony provision expressly references another federal statute, a federal criminal statute, at 18 U.S.C. Section 844I. So what's the definition of that statute? Well, Section 844I makes criminal anyone who, quote, maliciously damages or destroys, or attempts to damage or destroy by means of fire or an explosion, any building, vehicle, or other real or personal property, end quote. Thus, to obtain a conviction of the Ninth Circuit, quote, the government must prove that the defendant, one, maliciously, two, damaged or destroyed a building, vehicle, or other real or personal property, three, by means of fire or explosive, and four, that it was a building, vehicle, or personal or real property, end quote. So four elements. Nice. Then, under the categorical approach, we compare the California statute of conviction to this definition. If it's a match or encompasses less conduct than the federal offense, the non-citizen is removable. If the California offense criminalizes more conduct than the federal removability provision, in this case Section 844, the non-citizen isn't removable, at least under the categorical approach. Here, the whole inquiry comes down to the first element, the mental state of maliciously. Because the term isn't defined by the federal statute at 18 U.S.C. Section 844, the court, quote, presumes that Congress intended to adopt the term's established common law meaning, end quote. In the arson context, this generally required that the person intentionally act, quote, which the act created a very high risk of burning the dwelling house of another, where the actor knew of that risk but nonetheless engaged in the risk-taking act, end quote i.e., the actor is, quote, subjectively aware of the risk, end quote, of arson. So that's what maliciousness means to make someone criminal under Section 844I, and therefore removable for having been convicted of an aggravated felony under INA Section 101A43E. So, we've defined maliciousness, and that definition aligns to various material degrees with decisions out of the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th circuits. So much agreement this week. That therefore brings us to the next question. What mental state does the California crime require? Need us Californians be as malicious as some political commenters believe us already to be? We need not be. At least to commit arson under California Penal Code Section 451B. Although both statutes require that the defendant act maliciously, California courts have interpreted the term to include less than malicious conduct i.e., there is a realistic probability that California prosecutes the crime in a way that is broader than the federal definition. The realistic probability test at work in a way that helps non-citizens, as the Supreme Court's Duenas Alvarez decision intended. For example, the California Supreme Court has affirmed a conviction where the defendants, quote, were aware of facts that would lead a reasonable person to realize that the direct, natural, and highly probable consequence of igniting and throwing a firecracker into dry brush would be the burning of the hillside, end quote. But that's not the same thing as federal maliciousness because it doesn't require that the defendants were, quote, subjectively aware, end quote, that a fire would likely occur based on their actions. A perhaps thin line, but a very important line when talking categorical approach and mens rea. It would appear that Oil didn't argue that mental state is divisible under California law, and mental state rarely is, which means that the modified categorical approach has no role to play. 
and that means that California Penal Code Section 451B always covers more conduct than INA Section 101A43EI. And that means it can't be an aggravated felony, which means that Mr. Toganon is not removable as charged. The categorical approach at work. Congratulations, Matthew N. Ball, and many more from Gibson Dunn for Petitioner. Two more things. Of note, the federal criminal statute that I just discussed, 18 U.S.C. Section 844-I, like pretty much all federal criminal statutes, requires that the conduct, in this case the damage to property, affect interstate or foreign commerce. That's the jurisdictional element generally required under the U.S. Constitution for the feds to criminalize anything. Con Law 101. But as the Supreme Court explained in the 2016 decision Luna Torres v. Lynch, this last element of the offense, the jurisdictional element, is ignored when applying the categorical approach. After all, a state offense will never have it, so it would pretty much negate all aggravated felonies and other removability provisions that expressly reference a federal criminal statute if it was applied in the categorical approach. Us non-citizens' councils can't have everything, of course. Also, and before we finish up the episode, and while on the topic of the Ninth Circuit, I note that the court amended its August decision in Plancarte Suceda v. Garland, discussed on episode 69 of the podcast, that favorable asylum decision about female nurses. Not much has changed, so check out the previous case summary. And thank you so much, Ninth Circuit, for beginning the amended decision explaining precisely, paragraph by paragraph, what you changed. It means the world to this swamped podcast host. And that is Taganan Vigarlan. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.